Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We come back this morning to this, uh, this uh, great chapter and this great book that we've been looking at for really a number of years now. It's safe to say that uh, for many people, authority is a problem. Uh, they struggle with it in various ways and for various reasons. They don't like authority structures. They don't like authority figures. They don't like authoritative messages or authoritative tones. For many of them, it is one of the primary reasons they struggle with Christianity. They don't like all the sort of authoritative sounding uh, voices that are there or, as I said, messages that are there. They don't like the idea of, uh, of a church's authority or even God's authority. All of it just generates kinds of negative feelings inside of them that just seem to push them away. There are actually some who imagine that, uh, you know, Jesus himself was just sort of gentle and mild and not that authoritative, or there are others who assume that he was some sort of rebel figure who was all about overthrowing, uh, whether it is the Romans or the Jewish leadership, he was all about overthrowing authority figures himself and the authority structures, and they recast Jesus as some sort of social dissident who was in some way sympathetic to their own sort of causes. But the reality is very different when you look into Jesus's life. Those who encountered Jesus encountered his authority and they interacted with it whenever they heard him teach and when they saw his works on the ground. You may remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus had finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds responded. It says, Matthew says, they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So people heard Jesus teach, and the way that he taught, the message that he taught, conveyed or came across to them with authority. And it's like an authority like they had never heard before, not, for, not like any of their teachers. For his part, Jesus acknowledged that he himself was operating under authority, that he had been given authority by God, and the message that he spoke, he spoke with authority because it had been entrusted to him by the authority of God. He says in John 12, He says, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So he's saying, whatever I'm saying, I'm not saying on my own initiative. This doesn't arise from me, but it was entrusted to me by God, and I speak it just as he, he commanded me to speak it, not only because it has eternal life, but because he commanded me to teach it that way. And even beyond Jesus' words, there was the issue of his, of his miracles, which conveyed a certain authority. The whole purpose of his miracles was to establish his authority in the things that he spoke. This is what Peter tells us in Acts chapter 3, when he's talking to Jews on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching and he says that Jesus had been attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed 
through him in your midst. In other words, he's saying these miracles and these signs that you saw in Jesus, the purpose of them was to validate, to attest, to authenticate Jesus in a certain way. It was to give him a level of authority as he spoke. And as a matter of fact, when God gave miracle powers to the apostles and the New Testament prophets, it was for the same purpose. It was to validate them apart from everyone else who may come along and propose to have some message from God. It was to validate them with their authority to speak on behalf of God. So Jesus, in his own ministry, spoke with a level of authority, and he operated with a level of authority, and it was a recognized authority by a lot of people. In fact, at one point, he encountered a Roman centurion who had a a very beloved slave in his household who had fallen ill, and he comes and he requests of Jesus to heal his slave, and he says in Luke chapter 7, that you don't need to come to my house to do this. In fact, he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And he turned to the said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. This Roman soldier, this military man, he recognized authority. He operated under authority. And he recognized from Jesus' life and ministry that Jesus was a man with authority. And the authority to even just speak a word and his servant would be healed. And Jesus marveled because in his experience, in his ministry, he had encountered all of these Jewish people, these Israelites, his own countrymen, who were resistant to his authority, questioning his authority, pushing back against his authority. And now here is this Gentile, this non-Jew, this Roman soldier who so was so willing and ready to acknowledge, to, to affirm and even yield to the authority of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning when we come to Matthew chapter 21, this issue of Jesus' authority is raging. The questions against His authority are as prominent as they have ever been. This, His final day, of ministry. Over three years, he's been battling this. Over three years, people have struggled and, and fought and questioned and pushed back against his authority in spite of not only his works that validated him, but in spite of his clear teaching over and over again, which had come with the authority of God. And Jesus is not one who dismisses authority. He's not some rebel against authority. In fact, he understands as well as anyone that authority is established by God. God is the one who established all the institutions in our life that have authority. He established the family in the Garden of Eden with its its structures of authority. He established government 
and affirmed it over and over again in Scripture. He establishes the church and all of the authority that he's given to and, and uh, designated within the church. So Jesus in no way is opposed to authority. But he finds himself here in Matthew chapter 21 in a conflict of authority. But these are authorities which are claimed by men but have no ground before God. Men who are claiming a self-appointed authority and by that self-appointed authority pushing back against Christ. Now, the particular reason why this all flared up, as you may remember, is because Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem just a few days earlier. He was staying out in the village of Bethany, but he was coming into Jerusalem every day. First day, you may remember, there was all this fanfare. He came in on the colt of a donkey, and the people were praising him and even calling him the son of, uh, of David, the Messiah. He went into the temple, surveyed the scene, went back out of town, and then the following day, he came back into Jerusalem and absolutely cleared the porticos and all of the surrounding regions around the courtyard of the money changers and those who are selling pigeons and all of those who are profiteering from the whole enterprise of the temple. He poured out their, their uh, he turned over their tables, poured out their coins on the floor, chased out those who were taking advantage of all the pilgrims who were in town for the Passover and, uh, and needing to buy sacrificial animals. He did all of that, and of course, it struck right at the heart of the prominent families in Jerusalem, particularly the high priest and all of his sons and sons-in-law and all the people that were attached to him and all the sort of uh, infrastructure that was built up around the temple, all the leading families, because all of them were profiting they were taking a cut from, from what were really the exorbitant fees that were charged by all of these people in the temple. And so Jesus had come in and he had sort of upset the apple cart. He had come in and he had attacked all of these structures that had been sort of put in place by all of these prominent families. And so now he has raised the ire of these so-called authorities in Jerusalem and in the temple. And their hostility is boiling against him. And they're trying to figure out what to do because as Luke says, Jesus is coming in and people are, are flocking to hear him. One day, in fact, the day before this uh, that we're about to read, he had spent the day in the temple courtyard healing people who were brought to him. This first time he had done that in such a prominent location, right in the middle of the temple. And they're afraid because Luke says that the people were hanging on every word that he was saying. His popularity was growing. His influence was evident. And now, here in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23, he has arrived in Jerusalem again on another morning. This would be Wednesday morning, his final day of public ministry. And it's a day full of controversy full of questions, full of confrontations and tensions with the Jewish leadership. In fact, this entire uh, section from 21 uh, verse 23 all the way through chapter 22 and into chapter 23 all recounts the final encounter that Jesus had with these religious leaders in the temple on the day 
his final day of ministry, this Wednesday. It's a day that sometimes is called a day of questions and is filled with doctrinal questions and ethical questions and moral questions, political questions. But right at the front of it is a question about authority. A question about authority. This is what Matthew says in verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I'll also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then did you not believe him? And if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, in this brief little exchange, what you really see here is the glory and the wisdom of our Savior. Because with the simplest question, he utterly dismantles his opponents and puts them to open shame in front of all of these crowds. He exposes their utter lack of credentials to even be challenging him in the first place. And he does it, as I said, with a magnificent display of wisdom, exposing what are the real reasons why they are resisting his authority. The reasons that they don't want to admit to, but Jesus forces them to be exposed in. And the first one, first of those reasons is, we might say in verse 23, just their inflated conceit. That's really why they are opposing him to begin with. It's just this incredible conceit that they have. They come to Jesus and, and they say to him, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Those, what they're referring to is the overturning of all the, the money changers and all that other stuff. And who gave you that authority? Now you understand People ask questions for different reasons, right? I mean, people ask, sometimes they'll ask rhetorical questions, which are just, just these kind of questions you're not supposed to answer, but they, make a, they, they sort of advance the conversation or they make you ponder, think deeply about something. Sometimes that's what people do. Sometimes they're just honestly confused about something and they need more information, and so they ask questions for clarification. But you also understand that sometimes people ask questions when they really are trying to make a statement, an assertion, or in this case, an accusation. That's what this is all about. These guys are asking the question, but, but not really asking it because they expect that there would be a good answer. They're asking it as a way of accusation. In other words, the point of the question is to emphasize to Jesus, you don't have authority because we didn't give it to you. See, these guys, 
they were the sort of self-appointed, self-proclaimed authorities within Judaism. These were the chief priests, the ones who were over the temple. They were over the priesthood, those who made all the sacrifices in the temple. And, uh, as uh, Matthew says, also the elders who would have been the non-priestly families, the prominent families who would have themselves had some sort of political connection and political clout, and all of them would have had an interest in the temple enterprise as an economic uh, uh, system because they would have profited from it. But what we're not told here is that these priests... These chief priests were illegitimate priests to begin with. They were illegitimate, not just by virtue of God, but they were questioned by any number of people. See, the priesthood had been well established in the Old Testament, and the uh, Old Testament had passed it down, first of all, through the line of of Aaron, and then eventually down through the the line of Zadok. And then uh, every priest, every legitimate priest who came after that was Zadokian, in their priesthood, but something happened in his, Israel's history where that whole, that whole line was upset because while the Zadokian priests were operating within the temple, they were also operating under occupied forces, uh, one of them being the uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, he was a Syrian leader who was over them and required certain tribute to be paid. And so they would send the tribute up, you know, to Damascus every year um, in whatever bundle was required. Well, one year, uh, one of the men who carried the bundle of money up, uh, up uh, this is probably about, I don't know, 100, uh, 170 uh, or 190 years before Christ, he, he went with the tribute, but on the way, Whenever he encountered Antiochus, he actually made a bid, a bribe, that if Antiochus would recognize him, that he would be uh, uh, willing to up the ante, to give more in the annual tribute. And so uh, being a shrewd business person, this is exactly what happened. And so a non-legitimate priest was established. Following after him... With the same practice carrying on, uh, what was going on until one of his own servants, now this now illegitimate priest that's been established, was uh, doing the same thing, carrying the tribute up to the occupying power. And then he also took it upon himself to make a bribe to say that if you got rid of the, the high priest down in Jerusalem and made me the priest, I'm going to give you more money. And so this process led through a couple of different steps to the appointing of non-priestly families to the role of the high priest. Around the same time, you had the Maccabean revolt and you had all these sort of uh, uh, families that rose up into prominence within the priesthood. And now having sort of delegitimized the priesthood, some of the Hasmonean families who led the Maccabean revolt claimed the priesthood for themselves. So by the time you get down to Jesus, now we've cycled through several different families who have bribed and bought and brutalized their way into the high priesthood. And so everyone knows that these guys themselves are not even legitimately heirs to the priesthood. 
This is, by the way, why a whole group of people left Jerusalem and set up shop out by the Dead Sea, uh, a group known as the, the Essenes, and set up a, a community called Qumran, and that's where we get our Dead Sea Scrolls. All that is because none of them wanted to recognize the illegitimacy of this priestly family that was ruling in Jerusalem. So when these guys show up, the chief priest and the elders of Jerusalem, they are claiming an authority which is in, in every sense illegitimate. It was illegitimate from a hereditary basis and from a biblical basis, but even worse than that, from a spiritual basis. They themselves didn't have the spiritual qualifications to even be spiritual leaders within Israel. In fact, their whole sort of motive for everything that they did, Jesus will eventually say, was to be noticed by men. This is over in Matthew chapter 23. At the very beginning of that chapter in verse 2, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. And he starts into this long diatribe against these spiritual leaders in Jerusalem. He says, to the extent that they are uh, promoting and upholding the, the words of Moses, the scripture, sure, you need to do that. That has legitimate authority. But in terms of their life, in terms of their life, he says down in verse 5, they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. They were dedicated to this enterprise of establishing and exalting their own position and authority. He says at one point that they broadened their phylacteries, which is kind of a headpiece that they wore uh, 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 something on their forehead. They would make it big and broad with verses of Scripture on it as some sort of demonstration display of their spirituality. He says they lengthened the tassels of their garments. So hanging down from their robes were these long tassels that were intended to be some sort of testimony to their devotion and dedication. They made all these pretentious displays, not only in their wardrobe, but in their behavior. And then among the things that concerned them the most were positions and titles he says uh, that they loved the chief seats in the synagogues. They would come into the synagogues and there would be these sort of uh, stadium sort of benches on the side that, that rose up and they would always want that front prominent seat visible to everyone that was usually reserved for people of honor. And he says they loved being called rabbi. They loved the title they love the sense of authority that it gave them. Everything they did was calculated to draw attention to themselves and to elevate them in their position and then their authority. So when they come along and, and they see Jesus gathering all these crowds and growing in popularity, they feel immediately challenged. And they ask him, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority? Now, this approach, this questioning of Jesus' authority is almost the exact opposite of what somebody might say today. Today, people 
are not really concerned whether or not you have some legitimate institutional affirmation, ordination, any of that other stuff. If anything, people are more concerned today. Uh, They're more willing to challenge you today because you're proclaiming a gospel which in their minds sounds judgy. That you have narrowed down the truth to uh, just one option, and to them that feels too authoritative. Their problem isn't that uh, you are uh, not having an authority. Their problem is that you might be sounding too authoritative. But those complaints, whether it comes from these Jewish leaders or whether it comes from somebody that you're chatting with on the bus or wherever today in the marketplace, they're all, they're all sort of grounded in the same thing. They're grounded in personal conceit. You see, when someone makes the assertion like, you can't know the truth about religion, or someone comes along and says, you know, all religions are basically the same. Who are you to say whatever you're saying? Those people who make those kinds of assertions with no real basis, no real authority to back them up all religions are the same well why do they say that i mean who says that that's true on what basis do they make that assertion who really gave them the right to make such a bold uh, proclamation people who make that kind of claim that all religions are the same and you can't really know the truth or whatever it might be they they haven't really taken the time to consider how they can back up whatever they are asserting. They just assert it. They just make the claim. They expect people to acquiesce and just to accept the fact of whatever they have asserted. And yet that's very authoritarian of them to do that. To expect to be able to just make a statement without having to validate it or justify it. That's a level of authority that no one really has a cl- has a right to claim. You see the reasons why people do that are the same reasons why these guys who are confronting Jesus were doing what they're doing. It's because they're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to protect their own view of themselves. They're trying to protect their sense of self-authority or their uh, ability to establish their own rules or to judge other people who aren't willing to accept their making of their own rules. They never really want to answer the question about whether they have the right to claim the kind of authority for themselves that they're claiming. This was at the heart of the attack of these men as well. It was their conceit. They had convinced themselves on the basis of nothing other than themselves that that Jesus was the one who needed to justify his claim to authority, not them. They can just make assertions. They can just make demands. They can just march into the temple and start asking him questions and they never have to establish for themselves, who gave them the right to even ask the questions to begin with. So it's just their inflated conceit to begin with, which is making them resist Jesus' authority. 
But how does he respond? How does he take up this challenge? Well, he, he does it in such a way that exposes them even further in their real reasons for resisting him because it's not only just their inflated conceit, but you'll see in verse 24 through 26, it's their insincere motives, which is what Jesus gets at whenever he takes on the role of questioner himself. He says to them, I'll ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? Now, again, he's asking a question not because he's seeking information. He knows where the baptism of John comes from, but he's trying to expose these guys. And Matthew says that they, they hear him and they discuss it among themselves and they say, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? And if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd because they all hold that John was a prophet. In fact, Luke, Luke says that they were reasoning among themselves that the crowd will stone us if we say that John's baptism was just from man and not from heaven. So there's a level of self-preservation that begins to, be, begins to get factored into what they're saying. And so they answer him in verse 27, we don't know. We don't know where John's baptism is from, or at least we are not going to answer the question. Well, that tells you all you really need to know about the qualifications of these guys in terms of spiritual authority, because what it tells you is there is not really genuine concern for finding the truth. The question for them was not, is it true or is it not? The question for them was, how does it affect me? How does it benefit or harm me? Every question they encountered, this was at the root of what they, uh, of where they began. How will this benefit or not benefit me? These are, this is the original generation of pragmatists, or I guess in modern world, we might say grifters, right? where every decision that they make and every sort of stand that they might sort of take, all of those things were calculated in their minds based on how they personally benefit from the answer to the question. John Calvin says, all wicked men, though they pretend to be desirous of learning, shut the gate of truth if they feel it to be opposed to their wicked desires. That's these men. See, truth was really secondary to them. Primary was, was their pride and the covering up of their sin. That was the primary concern. And of course, that's often the case of those who are resistant to the authority of Christ. They're not really concerned about truth. When they encounter claims from Jesus Christ, their primary concern doesn't go to, is that true or is that false? Their primary concern goes to, how does that affect me and the pursuits of my own personal desires? These men, they had risen to the top within Judaism. They had been recognized by every people, uh, all the people, but they had gotten there by mastering the technique of always presenting every question and every interpretation in such a way that it shed the most positive light on them. But the reality is, 
These guys are not true spiritual leaders. Because spiritual leaders, true spiritual leaders, they address these questions. They answer these questions, not based on what, how, how they might personally benefit, but they answer them based on whether or not it is true, whether it's faithful to God's truth, whether it upholds his glory. Forget for a moment about whether or not it, it benefits or doesn't benefit me. The true spiritual leader, true spiritual authorities are those who are absolutely devoted to finding out what is true. They want to operate within the truth. They want to operate within the authority of God. They want to uphold his glory and uphold, uphold his word. And until these men had learned to bow their knee to God's glory and to God's authority and to God's truth, regardless of the circumstances, until they learned that in the fear of the Lord, they would never, never be, uh, be really true spiritual leaders and they would always resist Christ. You may remember the Apostle Paul in evaluating his own ministry later on in the book of Galatians chapter 1. He asks this question, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know, maybe in my former day as a Pharisee, I was all about doing whatever would please men and whatever would garner their favor and exalt me. But now, that's not my goal as a spiritual leader anymore. It's not about pleasing men. It's not about me. It's not about my comforts. It's not about my exaltation. It's not about being liked, being applauded. It's about one thing, doing the will of Christ, affirming his word and his authority. Those who are entrusted with spiritual leadership are absolutely surrendered to the sovereignty of God and devoted to His glory and there is nothing else for them that determines the truth. Well, these men, unfortunately, weren't there. They operated on a principle that was all about elevating themselves. It's all about affirming themselves. And Jesus wasn't about to be one who was going to shrink back from that and just allow them to carry on in that kind of conceit and that kind of duplicity. And so he is intent on exposing, exposing the real reasons why they resist him. Not, not, the, not the purported reasons, not their spiritual show, but the real reasons. And the reason is their personal conceit and the reason is their, their insincere motives. And then you could add to that their inadequate judgment, which is, which is basic here in verse 27. Jesus presented them with a very straightforward theological question, a, a, a fundamental uh, question at that, and they're left speechless. I mean, in some ways, it's comical. It's not even like an essay question. It's like multiple choice. I mean, you've got a 50% chance of getting it right. And they won't even answer it. I mean, these are the, these are the, the teachers of Israel. These are the self-appointed chief theologians of Israel. And these wouldn't have been the novices, the initiates that were sent to confront Jesus in the middle of the temple. These would have been the hand-picked debaters 
who were expected to go and to handle any theological roadblock that Jesus might have thrown up. And Jesus presented them with a question that they surely had thought about. Because John the Baptist was no obscure figure. His popularity had swept through Israel and had taken it by storm. Not only is it affirmed in the New Testament scriptures, but even outside of the scripture in the ancient historical documents of the time. The Jewish historian Josephus, for example, talks about the popularity of John the Baptist, how everyone regarded John to be a a prophet back in the day. So, So these guys, they would have definitely taken notice of John and they definitely would have had to deal and to grapple with and probably even answer the question over and over again in private and in other, uh, other quarters, what do you think about John? What do you think about John? But with this simple question, Jesus absolutely exposes how incompetent these guys are. How despite their self-proclaimed supremacy in spiritual matters, they're utterly unqualified as spiritual leaders of the nation because he forces them to demonstrate their inability to exercise the most basic act of discernment on this question of John. By the way, this is not just some sort of throwaway diversionary tactic because this question not only brilliantly exposes their cowardice, but if they had answered the question about John, they would have had the answer to the question about Jesus as well. It would have answered their question about where he got his authority. Because if they had said, as they should, that John's gospel and John's baptism was from heaven, then John himself had already proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. He had already said that he's not worthy to even unlatch the sandal of Jesus. You know, when, they, when he, Jesus is asking this question, he's asking about the baptism of John, but really what he's asking is, is a statement on the entire ministry and message of John. And these guys understood the implication because they had heard the message of John. The message of John was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had already told uh, Israel that the axe was sitting at the base of the tree, getting ready to chop it down, uh, the tree being Israel, that the judgment of God was at hand. He even even talked to the religious leaders and called them a brood of vipers. He was calling out their character already and telling them that they needed to bring out fruits or bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance if they wanted to escape the wrath that was to come. So they had already heard all of this. They had heard the message of John. And the last thing they wanted to do was to actually affirm all of that because it had implications for them, for their lifestyle, for what they proclaimed about themselves. It would have required humility. It would have required confession. It would have required submission. And they didn't want to do any of that stuff. And so they did what they always did. They calculated how to protect their pride and their obstinance and their self-proclaimed authority and their sin. But in doing that, they got exposed. They couldn't even answer a basic 
theological question. They were all twisted up. And so Jesus is putting on display in front of all these crowds that these guys are inadequate to make the most discerning judgment. They're illegitimate, which, which in some ways is the final reason for them resisting his authority, which is that they really were invalid. They had no right to even question him. They couldn't accept it, but they had no right. They had no credibility. They had demonstrated that, 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 that they were not in the place to be questioning him. They, they couldn't answer this basic question he had put, it, put to them. And so he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You're, you've demonstrated that you are not fit. You are not worthy. That you don't really have a right to even ask the question. And so I'm not going to answer it. He wasn't going to cast his pearls before the swine. This is, in a word, judgment. This is judgment. He is basically telling them, I'm not going to give you any more truth. He could, but they were already closed to it anyway. This is what God does when you resist His authority. You might imagine that you're sort of in this position uh, jockeying back and forth with God and jockeying back and forth with Christ and you're throwing up your questions, your, your friends are coming to you and talking to you about the gospel and you say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And you position yourself as this, if somehow you're in control of the whole situation until boom. One day, the light of the gospel is no longer shining. All of your resistance, all of your pride, all of your insincerity, all of your conceit in resisting the authority of Christ and his act of judgment is that he doesn't even entertain the questions anymore. He's not even going to reveal any more truth. He's just going to cast you off into the darkness of your own life to plunge you further and further into your despair and misery because you've resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted His Word. You resisted His authority. You felt like you were going to question everything that God did. And then finally, one day He says, I'm not answering any more questions. This is judgment. This is judgment. You know, Jesus, he is authoritative because he has the authority of God. But he's also very compassionate. He understands that all of us are born into this world with proud hearts. We're born into this world resistant to his law and resistant to his glory. We're all in that condition. We're born, the scripture says, sinners. Sinners and alienated from the life of God. Resistant to his, to his truth. And it's his compassion and his condescension, conden, uh, condescension that he came and he walked among us as a man. And he taught and he healed 
and he demonstrated his glory and he answered every, every question that could be posed to him. He gave every reason for you to accept him. And now he's ordained that his gospel be proclaimed to all the peoples. Even today, this is his message. Even today, this is his authority that's confronting you. And even today, the challenge for you in your heart is are you going to continue to resist? In your own conceit, in your own pride, in your own hypocrisy, you're going to continue to pretend like you have some right to push back against him? Are you going to do what God demands of you? which is to lay down your life and to say to the Lord, you are my God. You are my Lord and whatever you say, I'll do. That's the demand of the gospel. That's the demand of the gospel. You do that, God opens your eyes. He cleanses your heart. He makes you a new creature and he gives you eternal life. Father, we're grateful for this. The clarity with which our Savior taught is penetrating. It is profound. It's glorious. And it's glorious because He's glorious. We're so grateful that He could cut through the darkness the way that He did, even the darkness of our hearts. And we grieve that we resisted it for so long because we know that His burden is light that his yoke is easy. And we're glad now to be in submission to him. He has granted us life and life more abundant. I pray for those who are here today who have been putting on the religious pretense, but they are still resisting in their pride. I pray for them that somehow, some way, they would come to see that pride and that they would be broken as John called that they would come to see that the axe is laid at the root of the tree that the judgment that is awaiting them is growing and I pray that you'd bring them to a place of repentance we ask this in Christ's name Amen